verses 1, 8 and 9, 18 and 19. That's Genesis 1, 8 through 9, and 18 through 19. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with them, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature. And now the sons of Noah who went into the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Now I know today's scripture reading was a little strange because we kind of hopped around there in Genesis chapter 9, but... Hopefully you picked up on the fact that all of those verses referenced Noah and his sons. Because today, as we continue our study of Genesis, as we continue this study of beginnings, we're going to focus on the family just for a little bit. You see, Genesis chapter 1 through 11 serves as the origins of so many things about our faith system. We've already seen how it... Genesis chapter 1 provides the basis for our understanding about God, and Genesis chapter 2 provides an understanding of, of the beginning of marriage and, and what we should uh, define marriage as, as. We looked at Genesis chapter 3 and saw how we have the beginning of sin and its consequences, and then as we looked at the story of Noah last week, we saw how there is an understanding of salvation related to it. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to step, take a, a step back because from Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11, you have one continuous family. And what I want to do this morning is look at that one family and see what it is we can learn from them. Because guess what? That family isn't really unlike your own. It's messed up. It's a multi-generational family with a lot of problems. You've got sibling rivalries. You've got that one weird uncle who just disappears and you never hear from again. You've got this guy who just talks about himself all the time. You've got uh, a family member that, that uh, uh, creates drama that culminates with one member cursing another. I mean, it's just like your family, right? And whether or not that one family matches your own really isn't the point. The point is that from this one family, we discover two very important biblical principles for our own. That's what I want us to focus on today. And so we're going to backtrack just a little bit. We focused on Genesis chapter 5 and 6 last week, but we need to reel it back to chapter 4 for just a moment. In the aftermath of Cain's killing of Abel, the family has to another child added, and that is Seth. And when we look at Cain and Seth, we're going to look at the lineage of Adam and Eve through those two branches. And one of the interesting things is you're going to see these branches take two different courses of action. And from that, we can learn an important truth, and that is that foundations matter. When it comes to families, the foundation matters. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 25, we're introduced to Seth. So Adam and Eve are back to having two sons, and the descendants of those two sons are provided for us in Genesis chapter 4 
and Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 4, verse 17 through 24, provides the genealogical record of Cain's family, which is comprised of seven generations. And then Genesis chapter 5, the whole of Genesis chapter 5, provides the genealogical record of Seth's family, which is comprised of nine generations. But what I want you to notice in each of these families, in each of these genealogies, is who they climax with. In particular, if you look at Cain's family, his, his family climaxes with a guy named Lamech. We read about Lamech in Genesis chapter 4, verse 19 through 24. Lamech is the first person in the Bible to have multiple wives and the second person in the Bible to kill someone. But what makes Lamech despicable is the fact that he's proud of his crime. Look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 23 through 24. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This passage, Genesis chapter 4, verse 23 through 24, is a poem in which Lamech is bragging to his wives about what he's done. His attitude is different than his predecessors. Cain committed the first murder, but if you recall, after Cain committed that murder, he tried to cover it up. In other words, there was a sense of guilt involved with Cain. But not with Lamech. Lamech's proud. Lamech wants to announce what he's done. He wants others to know how fierce of an individual he was. This is an escalation of Cain's sin, and Lamech is proud of it. And it's interesting that Cain's lineage abruptly ends after the announcement of Lamech's children. No other descendants of Cain are mentioned after Lamech's kids. It's as though the author of Genesis views Lamech as the epitome of the wickedness of man which was great on the earth prior to the flood, to use the words of Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. So, so Lamech, Lamech is the climax of Cain's lineage, and he's worse than Cain ever was, and he's proud of it, and shortly thereafter, there is no more lineage of Cain. Now let's look at Seth's genealogy for a moment. Seth's genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, it climaxes with a guy named Noah. Hey, we talked about him last week. Seth's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson is Noah, and he's described as a righteous and blameless man that walked with God. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9. Now, that's very different than Lamech, isn't it? Very different than Lamech. 
Noah is a spiritual hero. Lamech is a degenerative. How did these families, how did these two lineages diverge so very much spiritually? I think to answer that question, all we have to do is go back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, and look at what happened to Cain after he killed Abel. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 19, here's what we're told about Cain. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. That's all you need to know. After he killed his brother, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. He distanced himself from God. That decision Cain makes to put distance between himself and God has extraordinary consequences on his family. And ultimately, you can say that the cause of his family's spiritual decline was his departure from the presence of the Lord because it just goes downhill from there. Now, put that in contrast with Seth's lineage. Because if we read in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 26, we read about Seth's first son, the, the, the first branch in the Seth tree, Enosh. And we're told that at that time, after the birth of Enosh, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now that terminology of calling upon the name of the Lord is an expression commonly used in Genesis to summarize religious activity of the patriarchs. You'll hear that terminology used frequently in the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a reference to worship, usually including prayer and sacrifice. And it appears that the author of Genesis is trying to say that just as music can trace its roots to Lamech's son, Jubal, according to Genesis chapter 4 and verse 20, and metallurgy can trace its origins back to Lamech's son, Tubal Cain, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 22, will hear worship of the Lord in some respects traces its roots back to Enosh, the time of Enosh at least, to Seth's son, to Seth's lineage. And it implies that, the, that, that when it comes to Seth's family, spiritual progress was caused by their emphasis on the worship of the Lord. Cain's family, distant from the Lord. Seth's family, worshiping the Lord. That's your foundation difference. One of the most important biblical texts for families to know is Psalm chapter 127 and verse 1, where in the first half of it, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. What this passage is saying is that without God's involvement in the construction of our homes, our families are going to suffer. This passage is saying that the foundation on which you build your family is the most important aspect of its construction. And there's only one, one foundation that guarantees spiritual success. It's the foundation of God himself. See, the foundation you employ determines the future you experience. This principle is derived from the parable of the wise and foolish builders. 
You can read that parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the, it's the last thing in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27. In that parable, you have two guys who are engaged in the same activity at the same location, and they both experience the same storm. What makes them different is the construction they choose. The guy who is identified as a wise builder decides to build his house on a rock foundation, on a firm foundation. The guy who is identified as foolish in the parable chooses to build his house on sand. And when the storm comes, the foundation dictates whether or not their structure survives. The wise man's house stands because it is built on a solid foundation. And the foolish guy's house falls because it's built on a weak foundation. foundation determined the future of the house. Now you might be thinking, yeah Kyle, we've heard this before. You've done this one before, I know you've done it. We've got this, we understand the importance of foundations. I mean, we're here on Sunday morning, aren't we? We're here to study God's word, we're here to worship him, we're checking the box, so therefore we've got this foundation thing figured out, right? Is that all that a solid foundation entails, is being at worship service, going to church, as people will often say, which is completely the wrong way to say it, but that's another sermon for another day. Is that all that a, a solid foundation entails? I want you to think about the parable of the wise and foolish builders. What exposed the foundation? The storm. The storm exposed the foundation. How you handle the storms of life is where the real foundation gets built. When a financial crisis comes to your family, how do you handle it? When a scary medical diagnosis arises, how do you handle it? When family drama surfaces, fights occur and arguments occur, Disagreements occur. How do you handle it? When those things happen, when those crises and those dilemmas happen, are your kids witnessing your faith? Are you demonstrating that you fully believe God has it under control? Or are you quick to abandon all of your spiritual habits? You see, storms expose foundations. Your foundation isn't just about showing up to worship every Sunday. It's about how you live your life daily, whether or not God's in control or whether or not you're going to quickly abandon Him and try to fix it yourself. Your foundation is exposed in the storms. Your foundation is built every day not just on Sundays. We need to understand that because our children are learning more from our lives Monday through Saturday than they probably are on Sunday because the way you live and the way you stand with the Lord every day is just as important as it is on Sunday. 
So be wary of the foundation you're constructing because foundation you employ determines the future you experience. And we see that in the lineage of Cain and in the lineage of Seth, but that's not the only thing we see in this first family. We're going to skip ahead a few generations and arrive at Noah's part of the family, Noah being a descendant of Seth. He has his own family, three sons who uh, board the ark with him and survive the flood. And we're going to turn our attention to an event that happens after the flood, one of the most controversial events. And there we're going to learn that not only do foundations matter, but so does imitation. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about imitation in terms of, of something being fake. The greatest disappointment in my life was when I tried imitation crab meat. We're not talking about something that's fake. We're talking about something that is exemplary, something that can be imitated. I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. We're going to read verse, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 9. We're going to read verse 20 through 23. And like I said, this is one of the most controversial stories in all of the Old Testament. It says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Obviously, Noah committed a sin here by getting drunk. But the focus of the story is not on Noah's sin, it's on Ham's sin. And what that is, is actually a matter of debate. Some contend that Ham did exactly what the text says. In other words, Ham's sin was in seeing his father exposed. This option is supported by the fact that, that nakedness was shameful in Hebrew culture. I mean, we can think about those cultures today that, that are in the Middle East and, and how covering up the body is a very important aspect. You have passages that speak about nakedness being shameful, such as when Adam and Eve sinned and realized that they were naked, they were ashamed. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7 and verse 10. And under Mosaic law, there are specific instructions given to priests regarding their undergarments. In Exodus chapter 28 verse 42, as well as instructions regarding the procedure for approaching the altar. It's, the text specifically says in Exodus chapter 20 that you don't build stairs up to the altar burnt offering so that nobody could see up your skirt, basically. And then you have a passage over in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15, where the prophet rebuked those who make people drunk in order to look on their nakedness. So you have these passages that speak about exposure being shameful in this culture. And so this is a very plausible option. But there is another option out there that some scholars take that is a little more absurd and I think makes you understand the curse a little bit more. I'm not sure which option is going to be the right one, but the, the absurd option, the one that is a, a lot more sinful in our 21st century eyes, is the option that Ham engaged in some sexual impropriety involving his mother. 
This option is based on the fact that the phrase, the nakedness of the father, is a euphemism in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 11 for a sexual relationship with one's mother or stepmother. And, and, and before you contend that that's too gross to be a possibility, remember what Lot's daughters did with him, and remember what that guy in, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is guilty of that Paul is saying, hey, you need to disfellowship this man. There's some pretty heinous, gross, disgusting, immoral activities that happen in the Bible. And it may be that Ham's falls in that realm. And when you read the text, when Noah discovers what happened, he pronounces a curse. Regardless of what Ham's sin was, the one thing we can be certain about is that Noah's response was directed at Ham's son. That's a very interesting spin on the story because after Ham sinned against Noah, his father, Noah responded by cursing Canaan, Ham's son. Now here's the thing. Look at, look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 24 and 25 with me. It says, when Noah awoke from his, his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And the question, the question that I know you have, that I have, that everyone has is, why is Noah cursing Canaan when it's Ham's sins? Why isn't Noah cursing Ham? We know in the Bible that a son is not guilty of his father's sins. You have a passage like Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20 that contends that. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son, this passage says. Certainly Noah's not punishing Canaan because Ham committed a sin. Because that's not the way it works. So what then is Noah doing? Why is Canaan receiving the curse here? Well, one thing you need to understand is that Noah's curse is not prophetic. In other words, it's not an announcement by God. It's not of divine origin. This is not a prophetic pronouncement. It is instead what's called a patriarchal pronouncement. Now, you may not be familiar with that terminology, but you're probably familiar with the practice. Because the most well-known patriarchal pronouncement was the one Isaac spoke regarding his two sons in Genesis chapter 27. That's where Jacob, under the guidance of his mother, deceived Isaac into giving him the blessing. You see, a father in this patriarchal age would bestow a blessing on one child and what could be viewed as a curse on the other children. So in the context of Jacob and Esau in Genesis chapter 27, You'll see that Isaac, once he was fooled by Jacob, he asked God to give Jacob, whom he thought was Esau, the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. He was asking for God's blessing on Jacob, whom he thought was Esau. He went on to declare that Jacob, whom he thought was Esau, would be lord over his brother. And then when Esau showed up, he didn't get a blessing. Instead, Isaac declared that Esau's dwelling would be away from the fatness of the earth. 
and away from the dew of the heaven, and that he would serve his brother. For all intents and purposes, we know Jacob received a blessing, but you could easily view what Esau received as a curse. And these, and these pronouncements were taken extraordinarily seriously. Remember, Jacob, Jacob was concerned about his mother's imitation plan backfiring on him because if his dad figured it out, he declared in Genesis chapter 17, verse 12, Jacob declared that, that he would bring a curse on himself. If, if Isaac figured out what he was doing, Jacob was concerned that he would then in turn get the curse. And when Esau showed up and found out that his brother had stolen that blessing, he begged his father, don't you have a blessing for me also? And all Isaac could say is essentially no. These things were taken so seriously. Remember, Esau was willing to sell his birthright, to sell his double inheritance portion, but not his blessing. The blessing was more important than the financial gain of the inheritance. What happens here is that Noah essentially makes a similar pronouncement. But instead of placing the curse on Ham, he chooses Ham's youngest son, Canaan. We don't know exactly why. But it does seem that what Noah was doing was saying that Ham's sinful example was going to be imitated by his descendants. The curse isn't so much a situation in which it's a prophecy that's going to come to fruition as much as it is a declaration of the character of the person that's going to influence their future. One commentator explained it this way. He said, Ham's offspring were not innocent victims of an arbitrary fate that was thrust upon them. The curse came to pass because they acted like Ham and even went far beyond their ancestor in obscene sexual crimes and vile offenses that were part of their idolatrous lifestyle. See, the curse is on Canaan. Now, does that name sound familiar to you? Ham's son is Canaan, the patriarch of the Canaanites, Israel's worst enemies. It's the Canaanites who the Israelites are told not to imitate in Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 3. And if you read through Leviticus chapter 18, the whole chapter is about sexual sin. In fact, Leviticus 18 uses some of that terminology about the nakedness of the father and some of the types of sexual immorality that's being described there. And all of it is implication that the Canaanites engaged in those things. The descendants of Ham engaged in those sexual sins. And the Israelites are being told in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 3, don't be like them. We're also told in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4 and 5, 
that the Canaanites were going to be expelled from the land by God because of their wickedness. The Lord viewed them as a very wicked people because of their actions, because of the things they did. And judgment was going to come upon them for that. Now, why am I telling you all this? It's because one of the most common sense statements in all the Bible can be found in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, which says, whatever one sows, that he will also reap. I think that's what's happening here. Noah, in pronouncing this patriarchal pronouncement, is saying that Ham's descendants via Canaan were going to reap what Ham sowed. We understand this terminology because we, we get the farming metaphor that, metaphor that what you plant is what's going to grow. And we witness it in our own lives, don't we? Whether you like it or not, the vast majority of us imitate our parents to one degree or another. I don't like to admit it, but I am just like my dad in a lot of ways. I'm just like my dad when it comes to my anxiety about money. I'm just like my dad when it comes to preferring routine over spontaneity. I'm, I'm just like my dad when it comes to my limited displays of affection. Meanwhile, Sarah's just like her mother. She's perfect. <laughs> and I'm not just saying that because my mother-in-law is now a member here. I'm also saying it because she lives with me. <laughs> All kidding aside, oftentimes we're just like our parents because we grow up imitating them. We grow up trying to do what they do and be what they be. That'll work. And the Bible supports this conclusion when you venture further back into the book of Genesis. You read about Abraham's family? Deceit became a family tradition there. Abraham lies about his relationship with his wife, Sarah. Next thing you know, Isaac is lying about his relationship with his wife, Rebecca. Next thing you know, Jacob, under the guidance of Rebecca, is lying to his father about his identity. And then Jacob's children are lying to him about what happened to his son Joseph. Where do you think each generation learned deceit? You see, we imitate our parents and emulate our parents in so many ways. We reap what they sow when you really think about it. And because of that, there's something I hate. And, and it's okay to hate things as long as they're things that God hates too, right? One thing I hate is when I hear parents say, do as I say, not as I... Oh, you know that one? You know why I hate it? Because it's the definition of hypocrisy, isn't it? As parents, we should be setting the example so that we can confidently assert, do as I do. I mean, that's what Paul does. If you look at Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, he says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. 
Can you imagine Paul writing to a church and saying, do as I say, not as I do? That would never happen. It's a flawed mentality to teach children that when they are adults, they're above the rules. And that's what we're doing when we say, do as I say, not as I do. Godly parents realize that their spiritual inconsistencies could result in their children's spiritual demise, so they take seriously their roles as spiritual compasses. We need to understand and recognize that imitation matters when it comes to families because the next generation is going to imitate us. Solomon wisely summed up the importance of a righteous parental example when he wrote Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 7, which says, The righteous lead blameless lives. Blessed are their children after them. The question of the day is, are you building a family foundation like Cain, away, who went away from the presence of the Lord, or are you building a family foundation like Seth, whose family called upon the name of the Lord? And are you setting a positive example for future generations, or are you setting a negative example that will one day be imitated by the next generation? According to legend, an unknown monk wrote the following in 1100 A.D., and I've shared this with you before, but I find it so powerful. He wrote, When I was a young man, I wanted to change the world. I found it was difficult to change the world, so I tried to change my nation. When I found I couldn't change the nation, I began to focus on my town. I couldn't change the town. And as an older man, I tried to change my family. Now, as an old man, I realize the only thing I can change is myself. And suddenly I realized that if long ago I had changed myself, I could have made an impact on my family. My family and I could have made an impact on our town. Their impact could have changed the nation. And I could indeed have changed the world. Change always starts with you. If you want to change the world, start with yourself, then your family, and the rest will take care of itself from there. But you've got to begin with foundations. And you've got to begin with your own example that can be imitated. This morning, I know not everybody here has kids to be imitating for. I know not everybody here has young ones in the home. Regardless of whether or not you have children or your children have grown up and they're out of the home on their own, you're modeling something for somebody. Somebody's watching. What are they seeing when they look at you? That's the ultimate message today. And if they're not seeing Christ through you, then what needs to change? We invite you to make that change while together we stand and sing.